Hi, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Heart Podcast. My name is James Rudd. I'm the digital media editor here at Heart. Thank you so much for your very kind reviews on iTunes and other platforms. It really does help us spread the word and get new listeners to the podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Jonathan Buba from Seattle, and we discuss his comprehensive review, which is called Cardiopulmonary Exercise Testing for Heart Failure, Pathophysiology and Predictive Markers. It's a long discussion. And I urge you to listen to the end because there's some great advice at the end for new fellows. And also make sure that you read the article and enjoy the figures and tables that Dr. Bubris put together. They really do add lots of value to the piece. Thanks for listening. So what I might do is ask you to introduce yourself for the Heart Podcast audience. Who are you and where do you work? Sure. Thank you very much for inviting me. My name is Yoni Buber and I'm the I'm an associate professor of medicine and division of cardiology at the University of Washington Medical Center in Seattle, Washington, in the United States. Um, I'm also an associate program director for the Adult Congenital Heart Disease Service. And then my other interests include, obviously, exercise physiology, but also cardioobstetrics and connective tissue-related aortopathies. And Dr. Buber, I wanted to get you on the podcast really to discuss your comprehensive review, which is called Cardiopulmonary Exercise Testing for Heart Failure, Pathophysiology and Predictive Markers. I found this a really fascinating read, a very detailed review, and I really wanted to get you on to maybe discuss uh, this in a little bit more detail. Um, perhaps we can start off by me having you explain a little bit more about what, let's call it CPET testing for brevity. What is CPET testing and how is it performed? Sure. So the CPET stands for cardiopulmonary exercise testing. And it is pretty much a symptom-limited rather than a time-limited study that is performed in dedicated exercise rooms, uh, usually located in the pulmonary department, um, either on a treadmill or on an exercise bike um, called a cycle ergometer. Um, it is performed in order to obtain an estimate of the maximal cardiac output during upright exercise, which is best reflected non-invasively by uh, the parameter that we collect that is called the maximal oxygen consumption, or how we name it, the VO2 max. Uh, the progressive work exercise protocols to measure VO2 max employ gradual exercise increments, advancing to the symptom-limited maximal effort uh, during the test. In addition to the standard uh, EKG and the blood pressure measurements that are usually done in all exercise tests, the seat petal uses a mask or a mouthpiece to collect exhaled gases for measurements of minute ventilation, or the way that we call it, VE, uh, the oxygen consumption, or the VO2, and carbon dioxide production, or uh, the VCO2. Both the treadmill and the cycle ergometer use progressive exercise tests in, um, and then they incorporate at least 50% of the skeletal muscle mass. During the CPET, the blood pressure flow to the exercising muscle groups increases in proportion to the power output that is required for each level of exercise activity. And at maximal effort, the flow of the oxygenated blood to the exercising muscle may consume uh, up to 90% of the maximal cardiac output. In terms of what we tell the patients or how we instruct the patients, uh, prior to the CPET. They're not required uh, to fast prior to the test, but they are recommended to eat only a light meal mm -hmm. uh, beforehand. Uh, medications are not stopped. We ask the patients to take their medications. 
And our only request pretty much is to avoid smoking so that it wouldn't affect the, the spirometry results that are done prior to the CPET. Um, in, some, in some patients who ask about clothing, we recommend sports clothing and uh, of course running shoes if possible. During the test, uh, we have two screens and the data is being collected from the mouthpiece in a breath-by-breath -breath fashion and is being displayed on one of the screens, both in uh, numerical values and by graphs. And then on the second screen, we have the EKG display and all the other vital signs that are shown. Um, in addition, the patients are being asked every few minutes how difficult they feel the effort is from them. And we place their response on a special scale that is called the Borg scale. At the end of the study, the patients are being asked uh, what was their limiting symptom. And the usual answer or the most uh, frequently reported answer and the normal answer usually is, the le is leg fatigue, which is uh, uh, reflective of the, of the inadequate delivery of oxygenated blood to enable the exercising muscle to sustain the final increments of exercise. Uh, one thing that I made that I would like to mention about the treadmill and then the psychoergometer, um, they both provide reproducible peak oxygen consumption measurements. Um, but since on the treadmill, when we walk or, or uh, run, there is more muscle involvement. So we, we employ more muscle power. The peak VO2 that is being recorded is usually anywhere between five to 10% higher than, than on the cycle ergometer. And so many of us would prefer doing uh, CPETs on the treadmill. Um, however, for patients with severely impaired uh, heart function or severe heart failure, just the simple initiation of walking on the treadmill requires a relatively large um, fraction of their total exercise capacity, and that may cause uh, premature stopping of the exercise. They just get tired too soon. And so for those patients with severe heart failure, um, we utilize the bike. And the same consideration goes for uh, the obese patients. They also have to work a little bit harder at the beginning of the, the exercise on the treadmill. And so we use the bike for them as, as well. Gotcha. Yeah. And um, we're going to talk about using CPET in heart failure today, but are there any other, other indications where you use it uh, clinically as a test? Uh, yes. So I would say that there are three main indications that are used worldwide and also in our lab uh, for CPETs. Um, other, than, other than heart failure in the cardiology world, um, congenital heart disease is a pretty frequent referral um, indication for CPETs. Um, and in, in the congenital heart disease world, it is used to decide on valve intervention in patients with certain lesions, such as tetralogy of Fallot, and also uh, risk stratifying patients with complex congenital heart diseases, such as the Fontan circulation. Uh, we've been seeing more and more patients coming from the valvular clinics uh, to the CPET lab in order to uh, try and understand where their symptoms arise. Is it from the valve disease or something else? And so those are the main uh, referrals that we get from the cardiology world. The other world that we're seeing is, the, of course, the, the pulmonary patients. Uh, patients with various forms of uh, lung disease are being referred for evaluation of the status of their disease and also for evaluation of lung transplantation. And then the third indication, the third most common indication for referral to the CPET lab is dyspnea of unexplained etiology. And those would be patients who were uh, overall doing okay and then suddenly feel that their uh, exercise capacity is uh, gradually declining, mainly because of uh, shortness of breath and exertion. 
And so their, their physicians would refer them to a cardiopulmonary exercise test to understand whether this arises from the heart or from the lungs, which is the main question that we're being asked. And circling back around to, to heart failure uh, again, how does that tend to affect the oxygen transport pathway? In other words, what, why is CPAT a useful test in these patients? Yeah, I, I love this question because I think uh, that it includes so much physiology. It really takes us back to medical school and um, <laughs> dive into, you know, dive, dive into exercise physiology. And I think that whenever someone tries to think of a CPET and and how to interpret it, they need to, for a second, even close their eyes and think of the pathway that the oxygen molecule that we breathe in needs to make, uh, you know, from, from the upper airways until the moment of the energy production in the mitochondria. So everything that is uh, in between those those two uh, those two events. Um, can can go wrong in patients with heart failure. Mm -hmm. So if we start up in the, in the airway system, uh, you know, many patients with heart failure have um, lung diseases as well, which can be either restrictive or um, or obstructive. Uh, lungs can be also a little bit stiffer with our reduced uh, diffusion capacity in patients with with heart failure. So that process uh, right at the beginning of the O2 pathway can be impaired. Um, anemia um, is also common in heart failure patients, as we all know, and the red blood cells are the loop vessels that carry the oxygen molecules and transfer them to the exercising muscles. And so anemia can affect uh, exercise capacity. Interesting, we, um, we not ask patients to bring their latest uh, lab tests to the lab. And sometimes this potential barrier to exercise is overlooked by many of us. When you think about the heart, you know, obviously patients with heart failure have reduced stroke volume, but also many of them have impaired chronotropic uh, competence or what we call chronotropic incompetence during exercise. Um, that obviously can be blamed on the medications that they take, like beta blockers, et cetera, and the other one. Um, it can be blamed on inadequate pacemaker response to exercise. Um, which can be, by the way, overcome by exercising on the treadmill as the hill strike uh, activates the rate response uh, module of those pacemakers better. Um, but chronotropic incompetence can also uh, just occur in patients with heart failure without any medications. And in patients with heart failure were shown to have reduced response of the catechol receptors in their heart um, to elevated catecholamine levels. Um, and so, chronotropic incompetence can happen even without medications or without pacing. Um, high feeling pressures and backflow to the pulmonary veins um, is obviously a concern in patients with both heart failure and with reduced and preserved ejection fraction. Uh, that can cause elevation of the wedge pressures during exercise. And sometimes, you know, frank increase in the pulmonary vascular resistance with resultant RV dysfunction all happening during exercise. Um, in patients who are uh, more obese, there is also the effect of constraint by the pericardium, um, and, and that causes abnormal interventricular coupling. So, so that's, that's the heart function. Um, moving on away from the heart to the vascular bed, um, many patients have with heart failure have risk factors, including atherosclerosis and hypertension. 
that causes resistance from the stiff vasculature and, and kind of a back wave effect on the, on the exercising heart, which increases um, the systemic vascular resistance and the resistance to the, to the beating heart. Um, you know, the backflow of the blood to the pulmonary veins that I mentioned earlier can cause an effect of hyperventilation during exercise, which is pretty common in heart failure. And that causes the diaphragm, in fact, to work, to work harder during exercise and do some blood steal from the exercising muscles. Um, and then finally, in, in some of the patients, there is abnormal vasoconstriction of the gut and the splanctic vessels, um, which can cause um, frank hypotension during exercise that we see not infrequently in heart failure patients. And then finally, what I think is uh, the most overlooked effect of uh, exercise intolerance in heart failure patients is the, is the performance of the skeletal muscle during exercise. Um, we know that there are many, many pathologies on that level in patients with heart failure, including inadequate blood flow at the capillary level, in fact, to the exercising muscles, uh, vasoconstrictions, um, endothelial dysfunction at the capillary level, and increased vascular stiffness. Um, and all of that, interestingly, causes um, low or reduced or abnormal um, oxygen diffusing capacity from the capillaries to the exercising muscles and reduced um, availability of oxygen during exercise. One more thing that is, you know, catches the interest of many, many researchers and, and has also interesting, I think, potential therapeutic implications is the area of mitochondrial dysfunction during mm. exercise. We know that in heart failure patients, the mitochondria look and um, act, I would say, or perform differently than in patients without heart failure. Uh, the distribution of the mitochondria in the exercising muscles is different. Uh, they're able to produce less energy. Um, and there are many, many therapeutic implications that are being um, evaluated these days to overcome um, that effect in heart failure patients. And Dr. Buber, what would you say are the, the commonest reasons that cardiologists send you patients with heart failure? What are the questions that they are asking you to address with the CPET testing? The main questions we're being asked by the heart failure doctors um, are to grade the disease severity of their patient. Um, to assess the decline in the exercise capacity in a previously stable patient, uh, to evaluate the response to changes in the medical treatment. And there is some interesting data on that, on, on the newer heart failure medications, um, such as uh, Entresto, that has been shown anecdotally to uh, improve exercise capacity after initiation of treatment. And so we're being asked to look at that. And then finally, assessment of prognosis for consideration of advanced therapies, such as heart transplantation. And when you're performing a CPAT test, what do you mean by a submaximal effort? You mentioned this in a, in a few places in the review, and I uh, just wondered if you could clarify that a little bit. Yeah, that's a good question because we, we encounter that uh, not infrequently in the CPAT lab. You know, we used to, we used to um, exercise patients um, who would come in very tired, um, you know, slower heart rates from their medications, and they would get on the treadmill or get on the bike, uh, exercise for a few minutes and then stop and then 
we the information that we would get would not be sufficient we thought was not sufficient uh to report back to the referring cardiologist and then we would just call it submaximal effort non-diagnostic study you know please repeat the study uh when the patient has more energy or something right but now we know that we can report on some results uh even in patients who do submaximal effort and so when we're saying submaximal effort we mean that the patient did not pretty much reach two parameters that we look for first one is the ventilatory threshold, and the second one um, is the RER, or the respiratory equivalent ratio, um, for a number that is higher than 1.05 in our lab or 1.1 in other reports. Um, the ventilatory threshold um, used to be called the anaerobic threshold, but that's not a very accurate term. The ventilatory threshold um, marks the progressive um, increase in catechol release from the exercising muscles during exercise, which further causes a progressive increase in the systolic pressure and uh, mobilization of the exercising muscle glycogen stores um, that locally uh, mobilize glucose from the exercising muscle glycogen stores uh, that is not used by the mitochondria is converted to lactate, uh, which accounts for the progressive rise in the arterial lactate levels during maximal exercise effort. And, uh, and hyperventilation. And so we can identify when that happens um, and when the patient does reach a ventilatory threshold, we think that they did uh, maximal effort. Similarly, the RER or the respiratory equivalent ratio is the ratio between the expired CO2 or the VCO2 and the oxygen to the VO2. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that ratio, when, when the VCO and the expired CO2 um, is higher than the VO2, we know that the body now uses the buffer, the HCO3 buffer, to produce more CO2 to counteract the, the lactate production. And um, the patient, the exercising patients, need to breathe out more CO2. And then when that ratio goes above 1.05, we know that the patient has made adequate effort. Um, so, so those two parameters are met. We know that the patient has made and maximal effort. And if they're not, um, then we report a submaximal effort, but, but can still uh, report the results of the study. And just coming back to using the test to give you some idea about prognosis in heart failure, uh, which of the markers would you say are able to give you reasonable prognostic information about heart failure from a uh, CPET test? Um, so when you look at the history of exercise testing and, and CPETs, um, you know, many, many people in the, I guess, the landmark study came in the early 1990s from Donna Mancini and her group. Um, I think they, she, was, she was in New York then, um, that looked at only the VO2 as the marker of um, badness in heart failure patients. It was a very, shown to be a very strong marker of uh, what we call hard clinical outcomes in cardiovascular disease. Mm. Um, and in that, in that, I think in that original registry, it was it was uh, shown to be associated uh, with mortality in patients who were on the heart transplant list. And so since that, that study came out, the VO2 max continues to be uh, a very very important strong predictor of heart clinical outcomes uh, in heart in the heart failure world. Um, however, we know that um, many other parameters that we collect during CPETs have now been shown to provide similar prognostic, not even better prognostic um, 
implications in, in heart failure patients, either in um, maximal effort studies or even in submaximal effort studies. And so some of the other parameters that we look at um, include the VE VCO2 slope or the ventilatory efficiency, which pretty much um, uh, represents the amount of dead space uh, during exercise. The higher the dead space is during exercise, meaning that there is low stroke volume, but a hyperventilatory response to exercise, which creates a VQ mismatch and an increase in the dead space. Uh, that parameter has been shown to be associated with increased mortality. Um, the other ones uh, include the oxygen pulse, which is um, which is pretty much what the machine calculates as the peak oxygen consumption divided by the heart rate. And so if you go back uh, to how we calculate the cardiac output, there is the stroke volume and the heart rate. And if you um, divide the cardiac output equivalent, which is the oxygen, the peak oxygen consumption, you get just the stroke volume, which is represented in our studies by the O2 pulse or the oxygen pulse. And so an abnormal oxygen pulse response during exercise has also been shown to carry prognostic implications. We also look at how the recovery of the VO2 behaves after cessation of exercise. Um, we think that for exercising muscles who do not get enough oxygen, uh, there is continuous extraction of oxygen from the red blood cells after cessation of exercise. And so instead of an acute drop in the VO2 after the end of exercise, we see a very gradual kind of response, uh, which we call an O2 depth. And to us, it means that the exercising muscles were just not getting enough oxygen during exercise. So that also has been shown to be an important prognostic uh, marker. And then a new parameter that has been recently introduced over the past few years is called the circulatory power, uh, which is pretty much the peak oxygen consumption uh, times the, the peak systolic heart blood pressure. And so there are certain numbers that we use to quantify, to quantify that. Uh, in patients who performed submaximal effort, um, we also looked at the VE VCO2 slope. Uh, that I mentioned. We also look at the ventilation pattern during exercise. Um, abnormal ventilation in a pattern that is called the oscillatory or periodic ventilation pattern um, is an important prognostic marker in submaximally performed exercise. Um, we look at a parameter that is called the oxygen uptake efficiency slope, uh, which is the natural log of the minute ventilation in the, by, the, by the peak oxygen consumption. Um, and we look at um, the oxygen consumption at the ventilatory threshold, and the number that we use to mark uh, as a worst performance is, is 11. And so there are many, many parameters, if I was to summarize, there's, there are many, many parameters that we can still use um, in patients who did the submaximal sub effort and in patients who did maximal effort other than the peak oxygen consumption. And our reports, I think, now these days are just much more elaborated uh, than, than in the past. And in your review, you have a lovely summary uh, in, in figure three, which uh, highlights all of the uh, features that you just mentioned and also talks about a score where you combine VO2 max with renal function, hemoglobin, and sodium levels to further improve the prognostic and discriminatory accuracy. But just to wrap up, I just wanted to ask you whether... CPAT testing is useful for both heart failure with reduced ejection fraction and preserved ejection fraction. Do you, do you see uh, value in both of those conditions for testing? 
There is. I think that uh, there is definitely very robust data on patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, uh, you know, for both admitted patients, patients who are in the hospital and ambulatory patients. So for that patient population, I think the data is the most abundant and robust. There's also uh, good data for heart failure with preserved ejection fraction uh, in terms of the prognostic implications. I think we understand the pathophysiology of exercise intolerance in, in HEFPEF patients much better these days. And there's also some emerging data on the prognostic implications of it. And, and more recently, there's some uh, interesting data on VAD patients that shows that peak oxygen consumption has almost the same prognostic implications in those patients as it does in patients with heart failure and reduced ejection fraction who do not have a VAD, which is, I think, a very interesting finding. And just as we wrap up here, Dr. Buber, is there anything else you'd like to share or anywhere people can find out more about your work or the work of uh, your lab? Um, one of one of my when I work in the CPET lab, I think is is my collaboration with the lung doctors, with the pulmonologists. Um, I think that it's a wonderful uh, example of when two different disciplines come together and think of the same study in, in two very different ways. Um, you know, our conversations with a pulmonologist, uh, they look at the study and they mark on the um, tidal volume and the pattern of the breathing and the AA gradients and so on. And we look at the study and we comment on, you know, the peak VO2 and the VVCO2 slope. And then we try to sit together and combine our thoughts in a certain study and provide a very comprehensive um, report to the referring physicians. And so I think that it's just a nice example of how two disciplines can, can work together. Uh, my, my other remark would be um, how we use cardiopulmonary exercise testing in the um, adult congenital heart disease world. Um, I think when you look at the adult congenital heart disease guidelines, uh, cardiopulmonary exercise testing is pretty much everywhere for almost for every single lesion, for risk stratification, and sometimes for, for decision-making. I think we use cardiopulmonary exercise testing for decision on valve replacement in patients with tetralogy of Fallot and other, other conditions. And I think that um, in the future, uh, other disciplines, mainly from the valvular world, may learn uh, about how we use CPETs in the adult congenital heart disease world and, and utilize it more frequently uh, for their patients with, with valvular disease as well. Brilliant stuff. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Buber. It's been a real pleasure to discuss CPET testing with you. Uh, the review will be made open access for a few weeks after the podcast comes out. And I definitely encourage everybody to download and read it and enjoy the lovely figures and tables that uh, you've put together. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much, James. Thank you.